It's great to see you. It's really cold getting ready for Christmas. Oh, wait, we're in Florida. That doesn't happen here. Um, we live in a scientific age. Science brings us into the intricacies of life, into the fine details of what is beautiful and what is glorious. Science is a gift, but science is also a curse because science demands for us that everything is explained. There has to be a process, precise numbers. A, everything must be weighed and measured. All substances explained, divided out, so we know what's sitting before us. We have to know the how behind everything. And this age, while it is marvelous, it is stolen from us awe and wonder. Mysteries must be explained instead of enjoyed. Now, I will tell you, some of the times I'm worshiping God is when I'm digging deep into the science behind something. But also what can happen is the miraculous can get dismissed because we don't have the tools to measure what we're seeing happen before us. Miracles are not a violation of nature. Miracles are the hand of the artist touching his creation. Today we start this Christmas series called Wonder and Awe. And I want to encourage you to be childlike, to stir up your sense of childlike wonder and be in awe of the beauty and glory that happens at Christmas time. And we begin today with this announcement. The story of a 13-year-old girl in a small, unexpected town where absolutely nothing ever seems to happen. There she meets the Archangel Gabriel. He is the powerful protector, and he is the herald of heaven who carries important news to her that is about to change everything for her and for our world. Let me read to you Luke 1, verse 26 through 38. is the story of the virgin birth. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And, and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, they're having fun in there, huh? You're distracted. Do you hear anything I said? They might need help in there. I don't know. All right, going on to verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this in the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. All right, first point, the wonders. There are two great wonders that we need to deal with right now. The story that we just read, it was spoken into a group of people, into a specific setting after Jesus has died and risen from the grave. So if you had been there, the world around you would be steaming up with rumors about a plot that is beginning to form to basically take down this rogue rabbi named Jesus. And then the rumors would be found to be true. Then Jesus' close friend, Judas, betrayed him, and the innocent Christ was arrested, tried, judged by religious leaders, interrogated by Roman royalty, and then the political leaders turned him over to be tortured, hung on a cross, pierced in the side, and killed. And after this, his sure death, he was sealed shut into a borrowed tomb. Then new rumors start forming. This Jesus has been seen. This has got to be a joke, right? This has got to be a power play by his followers to try to gain a following, right? Well, it doesn't seem so. Actually, if you follow the disciples, they seem to have no desire for power. In fact, they're following after their leader and they're giving power away. And then something else happens. 500 eyewitnesses come forth and say, we have seen the risen Christ. We've seen him. And then out of nowhere, Christianity is birthed. Now, can you imagine the conversations and how they go? Someone says, hey, have you heard? These disciples, these fools, they're, they're spreading these rumors that Jesus actually rose from the dead. They're, there's no way that they actually think people are going to believe them, right? Yeah, I know. That's crazy. But listen, uh, you're not going to believe this. My brother said he was there. He was one of the 500 eyewitnesses. Your brother? And he believes it? Yeah. Your brother, the one who has given up on God? Yeah. Okay, wow. And then what would be happening is like a web. 500 stories just like that would spread from person to person to person until this movement has to be dealt with in the surrounding area. Then, 
as all of this web of information is going out, there's more news that comes. One by one, the disciples are each being killed. And they're standing before leaders right up to a cross that they're going to be hung on just like Jesus. And they say, no, I believe this is true. I will die saying that. And I will not recant anything. They all died for this truth. All right, that was then. Come back into the present. Have you heard of a critical scholar? A critical scholar is a scholar who is critical of Christianity but has devoted their life to understanding the Bible and understanding Christianity. The historicity behind it, all the studies of Scripture, everything. They are scholars. And what you might not know is, and this is so fascinating, I don't know why they just don't believe, Five facts that all of these critical scholars, every single one of them besides maybe like percent all say these five facts are true. One, Jesus was a real man who lived and died and was crucified by crucifixion. Second, Jesus' believers, all be- followers, his disciples all believed that he rose from the dead and appeared to them. Third, the disciples all died believing it to be true. And they could have just walked away from it all. They could have said, it was a joke. I take it all back. Let me live. But they all died. People don't die for a lie. Fourth, Paul, a persecutor of Christianity, is suddenly converted and becomes one of its greatest leaders. Fifth, James, who is Jesus' half-brother, he's a skeptic. Of course he is. He's the brother. He's got to live in the shadow of Jesus. Skeptical his whole life of this crowd that Jesus keeps following, keeps following him. At the end, he believes. And then I'll give you one more. 75% of critical scholars believe this to be true. Now, they believe this is true, that the tomb was empty. They don't know how to explain it. They just know that the tomb, it was definitely empty. 75% of critical scholars. All right, let's go back again. Not only does this demand our attention today, but even more so, it demanded the attention of the early early followers, the early church, all of the region around Jesus because it seemed like everybody happened to know one of these 500 people. And it's really easy to doubt somebody that you don't know. But when you have a close friend, when you have a family member who you trust and who is good, start saying, no, it's really true, I saw him. That is something that you have to deal with. You have to at least be curious. And what happened was curiosity overtook the people of the day, and these doubters began to peek their heads into churches to see what all the fuss is about. And people would gather from near and far, and the story they would have heard would start like this. Jesus was born of a virgin. As miraculously as he left, so the same way he came. The virgin birth proves the resurrection. 
in the resurrection proves the virgin birth. Two great stories that would make sense if this whole thing is true. So I want to encourage you to do something. Don't try to explain it all. Don't try to understand the virgin birth. Just enjoy it. Believe. And let it put a smile on your face because it means God has come for you. But I know you. I know me. We still have questions about this child. And so how do we find out more about him? Well, in fact, it seems that the whole, all the books in the Old Testament are really trying to accomplish one thing. They're trying to get you to hope in the coming of Christ. So I want to take you all, and this is, this is a tough thing that I'm about to do, so, but I believe you can do it. I'm about to take you from Eden to the manger, from the garden to Mary. Our second point, the wait. It's a long wait. Page one, God spoke, and it sparked everything into existence. Page two, Adam and Eve walk in the cool of the garden with God in Eden. Page three. Eden is lost. But almost immediately. Now, now look, the world is in its infancy. Eden is lost, and now sin, death, and evil have overtook our world, just like that. But immediately, still on page three, God makes a promise that he will send a serpent crusher, someone to come and crush the head of that evil trickster that showed up in that garden. Because God loves his rebellious children. He would make a way. And so the world put their hope in this coming serpent crusher. And Adam and Eve, they put their hope in Cain. He's the logical choice. He is the firstborn. He's the one to carry on the name. And do you know what his job was? He was a farmer, which means he would have been working the ground. Who better to find this serpent slithering around than one who's constantly looking down at the ground? And the hope is he's going to see him and he's going to stomp on his head and we'll just be done with all of this. But instead of crushing the head of the serpent, Cain crushes his own brother's head because sin was ready. It was prowling like a tiger and it pounced upon him. Jealousy overtook his heart and he killed his brother, Abel. Well, hope is lost. Keep waiting. Time went on. The pages keep turning and humanity we see not getting better, but getting worse. Delving deeper into evil deeper into the darkness, deeper into this abyss. And perhaps they got tired of waiting. Perhaps God seemed a bit too silent for them. And so God then chose Abraham, a man with a barren wife. And God says to Abraham, it's going to be through you that through your offspring that this child comes and rescues the world. In fact, I'm going to send you out to a land that I'm not going to even tell you what it is. You're just going to go, and it's going to be an amazing land, a promised land. And you will have so many descendants, so much so that they will outnumber the stars in the sky. And Sarah, his wife, laughed at God. That's a bold move. Well, 
Turns out, God was right. She conceived. So Sarah walked out in the night, looked up at the stars, and counted one. One hope. One child. His name was Isaac. Isaac had two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. They become the hope. Now, let me tell you about these guys. They were at war within their mother's womb from the beginning. Stick with me. Come on. You can do it. You can do this. They're at war in the womb. And then once they're born, Jacob, somehow he steals the birthright from Esau. I don't really know how that works. That sounds really strange to me. But somehow he devised a way to steal a birthright, which means that now this hope is going to come through the line of, of Jacob. Now, God had already promised it was going to happen. But now Esau, he's pissed and he's ready to kill his brother. So Jacob runs. Jacob has some children and he's got a family. But now time goes on and he's about to face off against Esau. He's about to face him. He sends everybody before him and he's about to cross the river Jabbok to go face his brother. And right before he crosses the river, he gets tackled from behind. From someone or something. It was not Esau. It was God himself. And then Jacob begins to wrestle with God. And do you know what he's saying in this wrestling? He's saying, bless me. Give me the blessing. And you know what God's saying the whole time? Jacob, I've already promised you the blessing. Stop trying to steal it for yourself from me. It's already yours. We probably do this with God a lot. And then God renames Jacob Israel. Do you know what that means? wrestles with God. And then God is like, all right, I know how my people are. I've been experiencing this. I'm going to rename them. They will be called Israel, which means wrestles with God. You do it. I do it. We demand a blessing from God when he's already saying, I have already blessed you and the blessings will just keep coming. So stop fighting with me and just trust me already. But we continue the fight and he loves us still. Then Jacob has all of these kids, and they form this great, huge nation, but then they become enslaved in Egypt. So God raises up Moses, and Moses leads them up out of slavery. The sea is parted. They go through the sea. The the sea comes down on the enemies behind them, and then they're out in the wilderness, and they're free. Oh, this is great. But one of the very first things that they do out in the wilderness is start complaining, wishing they were back with that evil tyrant in Egypt. And then they're like, God, we had enough of you. We're going to just like mock you a bit. And we're going to just like show you how frustrated with you are with how frustrated we are with you because you've not given us what we wanted. So we're going to do something. We're going to make a golden calf and we're going to like it more than we like you. And God loved them still through all of this. He kept his promise. All the way through. And finally, he would lead them into the promised land. And it was awesome for about one second. And they started looking around at all the other nations. And they said, we want a king like the other nations. And God said, but I'm your king. And they're like, nah. So he loved them still. And he gave them a king. But he gave them a king who would show them what it is like to live with God as your king. And he did well for a bit, but then David failed too. Because David, he, he, was, he was tight with all the warriors. And he sent them out to go fight a battle. He probably should have been there. And while he was out, he saw a woman bathing. The wife of one of his friends. And you know, one thing led to the next, and then she's pregnant. She's pregnant. 
And so here's what he did. He sent his friend out to the front lines so he would die to cover up what he's done, to cover up his sins. We go to great lengths to cover up our sins. We have a Savior who's covered them, but we still keep going to great lengths to cover them. But God loved him still and made a promise to David. I will send through you the, an offspring who will save the world, who will stop this pattern that keeps happening, who will give all the world new hearts. And so the world kept looking for the serpent crusher to come through the line of David. But they grew tired of waiting. They looked to other gods. And God finally said, all right, I'm giving you what you want. I'm going to give you over to your passions and to your wants. And then God sent up an army to overthrow them, drive them out from their homeland. Their hearts were now in anguish. Fear and trembling were overtaking them, and enemies were closing in on them at every single side. They longed for rest, and it never came. They got hopeless, and God was silent. And the days of darkness arrived. And for hundreds of years, God remained silent. When hope seemed to be lost, a star shined in the darkness. And strange men came from foreign lands saying, where is he? Where is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the king of the Jews, the savior of the world, the Messiah, the righteous one, the one who will make all things new? Where is he? And God's people did not recognize him, but those people kept looking. Was this the time? Like, is this it? Is this the dawn of the prophecy? Is the precipice of salvation right here before us? Yes. God breaks in. The king breaks in. All of scripture was groaning for this day to come, and it's finally here. So then we ask, how would this king come? Would he come in a radiant swell of fury? Would he come like a rolling army, flattening this evil political Rome to the ground? No. He came to an obscure village in the middle of nowhere to a 13-year-old girl and was born vulnerable to the humanity that kept on rebelling against his father. He would be called Jesus, which means God saves. Emmanuel, God with us, like us, but different, separate, and distinct, holy. Holy means set apart, and specifically here, it means he is set apart for a specific mission or purpose. All right, what is that mission or purpose? Okay, listen to this. Jesus is born, and his first trip to the temple you know, like we have a lot of young moms here, the first trip you coming back and, you know, it's a little bit, but you get back in here and then, you know, imagine I say something like this to you, but the, the priest Simeon goes up to Mary and says, what awaits your child will be like a sword into your soul. This Jesus, this child would die 
for his mother, for his brothers, for his earthly father, for the sins of all the world, for you and for me and even for his enemies. Unlike Adam, Jesus remained sinless. Yet he was treated like a sinner so that we could be treated as righteousness in his place. Unlike Cain, on the cross, man, there's this really cool place in the movie Passion of the Christ. There's a lot of stuff that I'm not, I'm not on board with that, with that movie, but there's a place where Jesus is in the garden and he's praying. This isn't happen, it happened in scripture, but man, you could, it's just beautiful. And as he's praying, there's a snake that slithers up and Jesus lifts up his heel and stomps its head. Jesus would not crush his brother, us, me and you, but crush the serpent. Jesus is the better Abraham who left his home in heaven to come and build a place in a land and make a home with us. He is the better Moses who would not lead us through a physical sea, but lead us, lead us through the spiritual sea of suffering, sin and death and hold it all off of us. So that when we pass through, he might take all of that and bring it down upon our enemies. He's the eternal king who did not send his friends out on the front lines to fight for him, but he went out and fought for us. He led the way. A fire burned in his heart and a flame blazed in his bones for the sole purpose, the mission to come and die. All the way from when he first took his first breath in this world. Because within death, the grave would tremble in fear at him. There he would turn death inside out and make it come undone. How? The answer is found the same way that he came. We read this in the call to worship, the Isaiah prophecy. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name, Emmanuel, God with us. The angel brings this prophecy to life. Standing in front of Mary, and he says, Mary, it's you. You're the one. You're the virgin. Now, you're thinking, how would you handle this? She was 13 years old. And then Mary asks, how can this be? And he says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. What does that mean? It's referring back to when Israel was wandering in the wilderness and there was the glory cloud. It was the Shekinah glory, the presence of God kind of glory that was hovering over Israel, guiding them and protecting them, fighting for them. And that glory cloud is the same thing that's like, like around Mary. But, you know, the first place that this kind of glory, Shekinah glory shows up is all the way back at creation. In the creation story, there's a line that says the spirit hovered over the face of the deep. Now, it's like there's this watery waste 
And right above this watery waste, this chaos, it's like there's this bird-like figure buzzing, like fluttering, creating energy. And then God speaks into that energy and life bursts forth. It's like a divine cocktail that brings about life. That same thing happened in Mary's womb. Now, I want you to think about something. The son of the living God grew in her womb. There's a promise that's been given to you that by faith, the spirit of Christ dwells within you. Which means the same thing happened, that creation is happening in you. The spirit of God is fluttering, creating energy over you. And when the word of God is spoken into your heart and into your soul, life comes forth. And you start becoming more and more of who you're made to become. You're changing. And he did it because he loved you. And he still loves you. And he loves you through your sins. And if you don't believe it, just look back at the history of Israel. God loved them still. He loved David still. He loved Jacob still. You have no idea how important you are. And you have no idea who you are for that matter. You have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. You are his prized possession. He is not taking his eyes off of you. He's been watching you and he picked you and he came for you and he came to make his home within you. Not because you are great, but to make you great. The incarnation is not just God with us, it's God in us. Union with Christ. That could be the very center of what it means to be a Christian, to have union with Christ, Christ in you, with you, through you. What an honor, what a privilege, what a joy, and what a wonder. His glory that was there at creation. His glory that was the glory cloud floating over Israel. His glory that was there with Moses on the top of the mountain that Moses couldn't even peer into. His glory that was there bringing life within Mary. His glory that was there in the manger is the same glory that is in you. And in this church. And in every church that gathers throughout this world. And one day his glory will go out and cover all the earth and make all things new. A new life, a new world. The deep wisdom and the ancient knowledge of God have put laws in place, natural laws in place, been put there by God, and we are in chains to nature. But the divine creator has come 
to break the chains of the natural progression of sin and death. We're free from it. And that same miraculous power that was there at creation and the same miraculous power that was there within Mary's womb is the same power that Jesus carried with him down into the grave, down into death and down into hell. And there God called him up with his words and life. Death had no hold on him any longer. Hell spit him out. And he carried you with him through death into newness of life, forgiveness, eternal joy, and a whole new miracle. And one day, one very fine day, he will return. The king will come back. And when he does, everything will be made new. New life, a miracle all over again. The last miracle, the one that sets all things right, where there's no longer hurt, death, or pain. That is the day we long for. And until he returns, we wait with eager expectation to the one, the one who humbled himself, was born in a manger, put himself in the arms of a little 13-year-old woman named Mary. Be in wonder this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, we have hope beyond hope beyond hope because this is true. And if we doubt it, God, we'll be honest with you and say we doubt it. And so we need your help to believe. We pray that your spirit within us would flutter and your words when they're spoken to us would spark life and faith and hope and love within us. The same love that you pursued us with, we would now pursue you with and pursue the world around us with. We need your help in this, God, so we believe but help our unbelief. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know when the priest said to the priest Simeon said to Mary, What awaits your son will be like a sword into your soul. He was speaking about this, what this represents. This is a sacrament. And a sacrament is the visible words of the gospel, the visible words of the good news, the visible words of the story of Christ and what he's done. And it's played out right here before you. And the challenge to you in the Lord's Supper, the challenge is an invitation to rise and to come forth and eat and drink with faith. that the manger was always pointing to a cross and the cross was always pointing to a resurrection and the resurrection was always pointing to a return where he will make all things new. And when that happens, there will be another meal, a banquet, a feast, 
that goes on for all of eternity that we would enjoy with our God forever. But to get to that feast, he had to face this feast. He had to face this meal. And the meal was, in a way, it was himself. He had to give his life so we might live. And so we have the bread and the cup. If you need gluten-free bread, I don't know if that's the kind Jesus used, but it's right here. It might have been. I don't know. And when you come forth, you're entering into the story. You're saying, this is mine. This is my story. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we are going to feast. Father, We pray that you would send your spirit here in this room right now to flutter, to to give life and energy here. And that as these visible words are demonstrated, you would spark life in us. You'd spark hope in us, peace, and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. When the plot was unfolding and they were seeking Jesus to kill him in a room, an upper room, far off from all the chaos, Jesus was with his friends and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, that's my body broken for you, take and eat. And then he took the cup and he poured it out. And he said, this is my blood spilled for the forgiveness of sins. It's God keeping his promise that when he crushed the serpent, the serpent would bite back and his heel would be bruised. He would bleed for his people that he came to save. So I want us to ask you to stand up. We're gonna sing two songs. And when you're ready throughout these two songs, you come forth and just, I mean, imagine the words that were spoken to Mary. What happens to this little boy will be a sword that pierces your soul. And when his sword, when he is pierced by the sword, by the spear, it might be for your life to save you. So let's sing. It's all true. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media at Grove Church PSL. And check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.